Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? Lama Rod Owens, author and Tibetan Buddhist teacher, describes himself as, quote, black, queer, cisgender and male-identified, fat, mixed-class, Buddhist teacher and minister, yoga teacher, and shit-talking southerner, unquote. When I contacted Lama Rod more than a year ago to have him on the show, his assistant told me he was deep into writing his newly published book titled Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and asked me to check back in the spring of 2020. Well, America has been through so much since then, and I am so happy Lama Rod and I got to have this dialogue now in the midst of COVID, Black Lives Matter, and America's ever-intensifying political turmoil. Love and Rage is a must-read for anyone seeking to grapple with identity, how to know it, and the suffering and trauma it can cause, and then use that pain and understanding to walk the path of liberation from human suffering. This is a Gigi dialogue unlike any other. May it be of benefit to all who listen. Lamarad Owens, this is a true honor and a whole year in the making. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Groundless Ground podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. When I first contacted you a year ago, your assistant said, well, he's in the midst of writing a book. And my heart went out to you immediately because I remember when I wrote my textbook, there was an entire year where no one ever saw me. Right. (laughs) Here we are in the midst of 2020. And obviously there's so many things going on right now that we can talk about. And we could go there first, or I love for my listeners to get to know the person. Well, I can just talk about where I'm coming from, who I am. You know, I'm a Buddhist tantric teacher. I'm black, queer, mixed class, cisgender teacher. And I grew up in North Georgia, rural North Georgia, and grew up in the black church. And those are the things that really have impacted my life. Like how I show up is Southern black culture and Southern religious black culture. Those are the things that have really guided my path. It's not that like I had a really, really strong identification as a Christian growing up, but I was really interested in the spiritual path. I was interested in what the spiritual path could help us to do in terms of getting free. Because it was like growing up, our goal is to go to heaven. I just really felt like I wanted heaven before I died. (laughs) Like I wanted to suffer less and be happy right now in my life. And I found myself really trying to figure that out. That led me out of the church into social justice and activism, community service. And so really community service initially became the way that I was trying to figure out how to practice freedom. And of course, that led into activism and advocacy work. And then activism really led me into Buddhism because I was really working to get socially free, but that wasn't enough. And so when Buddhism came along, Buddhism was like, okay, we can get free now. And like, that was so seductive. That promise that you can get enlightened in this body, in this moment. Fine, sign me up. What do I do? How Mm -hmm. old were you 
when yoga showed up yeah. and then when Buddhism showed up? I took my first yoga class probably when I was 23, right out of college, where I went to college and where I grew up. You know, there was none of that. There was no yoga, there was no meditation. So I moved from North Georgia to Boston, and I've been in and out of Boston for 17, 18 years. So when I came to Boston, of course, you come into a big northeastern city, and then there's all this stuff happening. As I was getting involved in meditation, I started seriously practicing yoga. Meditation and Buddhism really became the dominant practices for years. It's true, back in the 70s, there were some African Americans actually who were practicing in the TM movement back yeah. then. Yeah. I remember them and seriously practicing, you know, yeah. on retreats and all of that. But as I moved into the Buddhist world, gone. Yeah. It was only white people. I grew up unlike you, in a mixed race culture. My schools were totally integrated. And I'm so interested from your perspective, mm -hmm. what this was like for you mm -hmm. to be in this Buddhist world that was seemingly so white. Exactly, completely white actually. I mean, the, the communities I came into, yeah, were completely white. I was really called into the practice. Like my, like things began to awaken. And that was the path, right? Yes. You know, and so I moved through these communities, really, I would say, armed with this deep aspiration to really be, actually become a teacher. Like I wasn't, I didn't start out necessarily saying, you know, I just want to practice and just, you know, no, I started out at the very beginning, like, okay, I want to become a teacher. It's like wanting to do something and knowing that you're going to do it before you know anything about it. I knew that I wanted to become a teacher before I even knew what practice was. That motivation really drove me, pushed me through the ways in which I could have gotten stuck by being in really white environments and not seeing myself reflected. I was just really hungry for the teachings and I got the teachings. And I knew that I was just kind of passing through these communities that I started with. In other words, I wasn't trying to stay. I was getting what I needed to move on to the next thing. There's some kind of purity here that is so direct. I feel like there's something you could really say here that nobody's yeah. talking about yeah. in terms of what Buddhism actually is yeah. and why someone yeah. seemingly who would have no connection to it whatsoever, and mm -hmm. I'm including both of us, what is this purity you're pointing mm -hmm. at that can go beyond and cut through almost any identity? Like, I think it goes back to the basic thing that drew me to Buddhism was this promise of liberation. I had never encountered anything that talked about freedom, like the way Buddhism talks about freedom. Freedom from harm or freedom from harmful thoughts, freedom from delusion and ignorance and opening up into clarity and wisdom and love and compassion. That's what I was drawn to then, but now I understand that this is about space. Like it's about spaciousness, it's about cultivating and remembering the space that I have in my mind and in my body to be in the world. And that's what freedom means for me now. And if I have that space, then I can make all kinds of different choices to be in the world. And when I have that space and I begin to see other ways in which the world is manifesting, you know, and we begin to see other worlds and we begin to understand what death really is. We begin to understand the nature of our minds, the nature of phenomenal reality that happens when we get the space and we can relax and say, oh, you know, there's so many different ways to see this. There's so many different ways to react right now. 
right? And you know, and there are so many ways not to react, actually. <laughs> I agree. Know? This is how to let go of things, to move beyond things. This is how to heal. This is how to forgive. This is how to mourn and move through the grief. Like all of that just became really apparent. And I was like, oh, this is what freedom is. I'm not trying to get rid of anything. I'm trying to be in relationship with something that feels more generative and restorative. Some people might be thinking, well, this sounds a little bit like spiritual bypass. Yeah. I think the two of us understand the deeper concepts yeah. of the Kagyu tradition. And because of who you are, I think it's really important for us to backtrack a little bit now and maybe just drop back into the beauty of your story and the identities with which you've held. Yeah. For me, the path is about going through, not around or over. So when I talk about space, I'm talking about moving into the heartbreak, the suffering, the difficulty, and actually being in a relationship with that heartbreak and suffering. Bypassing is just skipping over completely. We talk about contemporary mindfulness or secular mindfulness. Secular mindfulness is really actually about bypassing. It's about actually trying to get to a place of happiness. Authentic Buddhism is about actually accepting reality, moving through reality in order to understand what freedom means, living in this body, living in this world, you know, and that helps us to earn the right to have an ultimate view of faith. That's the, the complexity and the nuance. We're bringing the relative and the ultimate together, and it's really uncomfortable. I use all kinds of words when I talk about the, the ultimate, but like it's really hard to be connected to the sense of divinity or or openness and spaciousness, and then at the same time living in the world. And you're called to do both. I'm called to be in relationship to my awakened self. I'm also called to be in relationship with my relative self. And then that gets into the present question, right, of identity. I couldn't escape identity, right? I couldn't escape the reality of systematic oppression, you know, in terms of race, sexuality, class, body, there were just ways in which I was suffering because I was born into a cultural context and a social context where I was experiencing a great amount of disprivilege. That was the basis of how I experienced trauma. That was traumatic for me. Racial trauma, transhistorical trauma around that that's rooted within slavery, you know, and passed from generation to generation. So I came into this kind of deep, deep discomfort. When I came into Buddhism, for me, it was like, I never heard a bypass or a skip over. What I heard was you actually need to go into all the things that you keep running away from. Being able to move into the heart of trauma around racism and around sexuality and class and body and so forth has been what has allowed me to, to be in a world that's really compassionate because I have been working really hard to be in relationship to my own discomfort. Because of that, I realized that like, I'm not the only one suffering. As a matter of fact, the people that I struggle with the most are often the people who are suffering the most as well. People, I think, are doing the best they know how to do given the circumstances that they were born into. Sometimes we just kind of walk around with this assumption that, oh, everyone had the love and the resources. And you have to step back and to say, you know what, we all had different circumstances. And those circumstances have informed how we're showing up in this moment. And so when I'm in conflict with someone, then I say, okay, our circumstances are influencing this interaction now. And maybe we're doing the best we know how to do, given what we've had to work with in our lives. 
when I see really miserable, violent people, you know, they're suffering. You know, that doesn't mean that we excuse it. It doesn't mean we condone it. It means that we recognize that they're operating from a place of deep discomfort. And if you recognize that, then you keep your heart open, even if you have to hold them accountable and set boundaries in the ways that we have to do to, to protect ourselves, to protect our families, and so forth and so on. But you can set boundaries and still be really open-hearted and compassionate. There are people that I can't be in relationship with. When you lose that wish for people to be well, that's when it gets really dangerous. That's when we start celebrating people who experience hard times, you know, like really objectifying them and saying, you know what, they deserved it. Whatever happened to them, they deserved it. That's a really dangerous place to be. Even if we consider them the most vile human on the earth, we still have to be very careful about assuming that they're making a choice to be that way. So I hear the fierce compassion. Yeah. And I hear the discernment. Listeners might be interested in the title of your book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. Yeah. And maybe... <laughs> Mm-hmm. They're thinking anger. Yeah. yeah. You know, Buddhism has some pretty strong views about anger. Right. Right. <laughs> and right. here's this amazing teacher yeah. saying anger mm-hmm. is actually a path of liberation. Well, this isn't a book about bypassing. If you need a piece of evidence that there is a path in Buddhism that takes us directly into what's uncomfortable, then this is the book to read. I think we look at Buddhism and we say, oh yeah, Buddhism really has a negative opinion uh, of anger, but that's early Buddhism. And this is what I'm kind of dealing with, you know, as I do more and more media. I'm sure you do. <laughs> you know, a lot of like, I was just on the BBC a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. I do tons of podcasts and do lots of live social media things. And the thing that always comes up over and over again is if you're not in Buddhism, if you're not a practitioner, then you have actually no idea what Buddhism is. Commentators and facilitators and moderators, they'll come and they say, well, doesn't Buddhism say this? I was like, well, one aspect, one tradition, one lineage of Buddhism says that, but there are many schools, many lineages in Buddhism. And I'm at, in a particular intersection of Buddhism, in Vajrayana and Tantric Buddhism, that kind of flips all this stuff on its head. So anything that you learn in early Buddhism really gets flipped around when you get into Tantric Vajrayana school. Buddhism is Buddhisms, and this is my Buddhism that I was trained and I come out of. In the early schools, anger is something we avoid. Anger is a poison we're trying to minimize. By the later schools of Buddhism, as we get into Vajrayana, anger becomes something, it's still a poison, but it's a poison that we turn into medicine. Bring it onto the path. Yes, bring it, bring it. Everything, everything, bring everything on. So there's anger, let's become aware of it. Let's get curious about it. Let's use all these other practices to begin to channel the energy of anger into benefiting. Ultimately, in tantric traditions, emotions are just energy. And tantra is really about energy. It's about working with energy, transforming energy, reshaping energy. So we're just reshaping anger. For me, in the book, I think the heart of love and rage is really about let's actually get close to our anger. But if you want to get close to your anger, you have to get close to the woundedness, the hurts beneath the anger. Because anger doesn't just randomly arise. We're not just pissed off. Like we don't read the news or we don't have experiences and just get pissed off. Like the truth is we, we're hurt. We get hurt. We get offended. We get scared. Wherever we understand it's discomfort, we feel that. 
and then anger arises from that. We get hurt and we want to take care of ourselves and we don't know how to do that right. in the moment. So there's a tension that comes out of that and that tension is what actually transforms into anger for us. But that's still not a problem. None of that is an issue until you actually start reacting to anger in a way that's destructive. That's the issue. Anger isn't the issue. It's our reactivity to anger that's the issue. Yeah, this is similar to desire is not the problem. Exactly. Get to know desire. Yeah. Don't get rid of desire. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly enough, I was actually told this first by Ajahn Sumedho. Uh, the Thai forest tradition. Mm-hmm. So people would think, oh, well, you know, a Theravada teacher would never say this. But yeah. in fact, it's a misunderstanding to say you need to get rid of your humanness in yeah. order to awaken. Yes, that's what we're disillusioned around. Like when you come into the practice, you're trying to become more human. Some people are attempting to run away from parts of themselves by coming into these practices. Meditation isn't just taking a pill. It's about things becoming much more live and dynamic. We have to see it and experience it. And experiencing is the point of liberation within, within Buddhism. We have to experience everything. You know, and experiencing, we come into a fuller humanity. I say this all the time, but it's true. Like I've met some really realized, wise, compassionate people who are really difficult really strong personalities, you know, and you just look at them, you're like, how can you be so wise and so realized and so compassionate and loving, but be so hard to deal with? These things don't disappear. But what happens is we just know, we develop an awareness to just see and accept these parts about ourselves. And we're like, okay, I can experience a lot of compassion and love, but I'm also still particular. And I still have opinions. I'm still kind of edgy and rigid in certain ways. And that's okay. I can bring a lot of spaciousness to those relationships because I have my own edges. Okay, that's, that's how I show up. Like I have particular interests. Okay, and no one else does. And that's fine. Or another experience that we have is contradiction. People get really disappointed when it gets actually more complex. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. I just said one thing and I'm saying something completely different, but somehow it makes sense to me. You have to hold that complexity because you're experiencing different levels of consciousness at once. As you move deeper into the practice, you're seeing things and experiencing all kinds of different things, you know, and you're trying to make sense of it, but there's only so far we can go in the relative sense. I'm not sure anybody's asked you this question, but I'm going to ask it. Mm -hmm. How often do you have the pleasure of actually teaching African-Americans. You know, right now during this quarantine, like everything's online. So it's actually a lot easier to get connected to POC communities, BIPOC communities, Black Indigenous POC communities, you know, and this is happening all over the world. I probably do a couple of POC groups a week. Wonderful. But I teach everyone. I've worked with a number of African-American patients over the years, driving while Black, living while Black, walking while Black. And I'm wondering what Buddhism, from your perspective, has to offer in terms of the kind of pain Mm -hmm. and the daily difficulty Mm -hmm. that African-Americans experience just showing up, period. Yeah, it's about Black folks. It's about a lot of us who struggle to show up. So my experience growing up Black, it was me really feeling I had no agency over the systems that I felt judged and marginalized by. 
I think is really hard to hear was that in order to survive, you have to start tending to your woundedness, your suffering, your hurts. And you actually have to turn back into it. And you actually have to start learning about it and understanding it. You have all of these tools to help you. One of those tools being compassion. Right. You know, compassion is actually what protects us. As victims of violence, victims of oppression, and actually what helps us to have this openness that allows us to thrive even though we're in these systems of oppression. Again, it goes back to spaciousness. What Buddhism taught me was space, that I have space. I don't have to be shut down and contracted all the time that I can open. And then as I got deeper into tantric practice, I began to understand that yes, and even the suffering is an expression of my mind. And my mind is emptiness, it's all these things coming together and then I can actually learn how to see anger. I can learn how to see depression and, and despair, hopelessness as these expressions of mind that I can give space to. And it's not like any of this has disappeared, but what has actually happened is that I have this incredible amount of space that I don't get fixated on these experiences anymore. So I can be Black in the world, I can go through experiences of microaggression and prejudice, which happens, you know, if I am out in the world, it's going to happen. And sometimes I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to give this any attention, I'm not going to give this any energy, because this isn't about me and my blackness, it's about someone else's suffering, it's about their assumptions. Even if they create circumstances for me that I have to struggle with, I'm like, this is still isn't about me. It's about that mind. That perception, yeah. and yes, that perception creates circumstances that I have to deal with. But those circumstances don't have to define who I am. So every day it's a returning back to who and what I am, which is based in compassion and love that I've been able to develop for myself because of the practice. So my love and compassion, first and foremost for myself, actually holds me as I move through experiences that I'm being targeted because of how I'm showing it. Be it being Black, being queer, being larger bodies in the world or something like that. It's the realization that I am more than just this body. I'm more than just these identities. That's where the teaching is. If you're not doing that, you're not really doing the real work. Like I have to be in this body, I have to be in these identity locations. I can know that. I know I'm Black. I know I'm queer. I know that I have these relative identities, but I also know that I'm much more than these identities that I'm actually an awakened Buddha, if I can just be really cliche. I'm this awakened being, at the same time, I have to be in this body and a relative, and I have to bring both of those understandings together. And that's how I move through the world, you know, because yes, I will have to die. Death is coming, and when I move into death, I am moving into a closer relationship with who and what I am. You know, so I have to be able to let go of this body, of this life, in order to move into a more authentic expression of who I am at the moment of death. I'm so feeling the juiciness <laughs> of your Southern Black church mm -hmm. identity. You're feeling the community. So this is another aspect, it's the collective. We come into Buddhist communities, and I think white folks come into Buddhist communities, you know, and they actually don't often know what it means to be a part of a collective our community. This is why we have Buddhist communities that are really silent. You go into the space, everyone's quiet. <laughs> you know? And that's really alarming for someone like me, perhaps that comes out of a black congregational upbringing where like you're just interacting, you're together. 
like you're concerned about the collective, like you're concerned about how people are doing. I practice not just for myself, but I practice for others around me. I want to take care of myself, but I also want to take care of my community. Anything that I do, like it can be really mundane. I say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I want to also think about how do I offer this to the communities that I'm a part of. One of my least favorite expressions is practicing off the cushion. Right. That's such a white expression. <laughs> According to the historical Buddha, there was no on or off. Yeah, it was just practice. Just practice. Just practice, yeah. You know, in white dominant communities, you're not bringing the real material onto the pattern to practice with because it's bypassing. Again, you know, if you're coming into a spiritual community and there's no diversity, then there's a problem because you're missing something. Because a healthy spiritual community isn't necessarily supposed to be comfortable. A spiritual community is a community of people who are intentionally bumping against each other in order to get each other awakened. Everyone is a mirror, and they're just always reflecting all this work back to you. That's a spiritual community that we need to strive for. The Sangha is helping you to practice. If you just show up, and you're silent, and you're avoiding everyone, and there's no personal interaction, then it's like you're missing one of the most important functions of Sangha. What was your three-year retreat like? It was a perpetual experience of a mirror being held up in front of you for three years. It was never a rest. It was never a break. Like you were always in the pressure cooker. You were always just moving from one thing to another. You were always having to look at things, hold space for things, grieve things, move through this, move through that. You just don't get a choice anymore to practice or not to practice. Either you practice or you can't survive in the environment. It was just really super intense. It was, the tension was really high. And you don't realize. You just get used to it. The, the schedule is super rigid because it's creating a container for you to cook in. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Purification. Like you, purification. <laughs> I just really appreciated that experience. It was the most important experience that I've ever had in my life because for three years, I practiced completely. You don't even take a break when you're sleeping. You know, it's like you're always on, you're always moving, you're always processing, you're always letting go, you're always developing this sense of refuge and taking refuge the whole time. Of course, in the tradition, we say it's such a privilege to do that. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to leave your life for three years, to sit in this environment and to be taken care of while you just do your practice for three years. And I wouldn't be here without that, of course, you know. I mean, I, I guess I would still be some type of teacher in some way, but I wouldn't be the kind of teacher that I am now with the experience. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's just, for me, the experience of three-year retreat was really about understanding what self-love was. I don't think I've, I could have gotten that experience without that. Was there a particular teacher that you connected with during that time? My primary teacher, um, whose name was Nuala Rinpoche, you know, that was my root teacher, that was my retreat master, and so forth. And so, yes, that was, you know, was the teacher that I was learning from, mm -hmm. connecting to. He passed away two years ago, yeah. right? Yes, right. You know, my relationship to him was really complicated. His relationship to our sangha, our monastery, um, is really complicated now. And I talk about that in Love and Rage. The teacher-student relationship is a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other conversation because you're entering into a relationship with someone. I want to talk specifically about the tantric Vajrayana tradition just because the, the, the teacher, the guru, takes on a different significance. It's true. 
devotion is what drives the pattern in tantric Buddhism, right? The Vajrayana Buddhism. It's devotion to a teacher. On the surface, it looks like devotion to a teacher, but it's actually devotion to our own wisdom and mind, right? The teacher, again, is a mirror. And I think we get confused when we start looking at the teacher or the guru as being kind of outside of ourselves. A real teacher is only there to reflect us, to reflect back to us our own wisdom, our own clarity. So we begin to take refuge in our own innate abilities. Because when we look at the guru in a way in which we externalize all these qualities, then we say, I'll never be like that person. That person has everything. You know, that person has experience and awakening and realization, but we have the same qualities in our own experiences. And the teacher is trying to get us to take that seriously. So beautiful how we're going back and forth in and out of identity. Obviously, mm-hmm. African-American people, people of color, they have a lot to be angry about. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I noticed, particularly among my patients, they were completely clueless that African-Americans have been experiencing this mm-hmm. for a very long time. I don't know how they cannot know, but they didn't know. Well, it's easy. And yeah, whiteness creates a bubble, and it creates this, this experience where you can actually erase the things that you don't want to see. A lot of white folks do not have black friends. You know, I'd love for you to talk about yeah. white people's fear yeah. of anger in oh, African-Americans. Yeah. Well, can we talk about that? Oh, no, absolutely. I spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about that. Um, and whiteness was constructed in this country in a specific way. It was constructed to create a binary between black and white. You know, white English, you know, more specific, white English men Men. who were positioned at the top of this like racial hierarchy. And then of course, white folks, other European nationalities had to work their way into whiteness. The thing is, a lot of the anger comes from this inclination that what they were born into was only created at the expense of black and brown people, primarily black people, people of African descent initially. Whiteness, your whole life, everything that you're experiencing and enjoying, or the things that you don't think you're enjoying or getting because of whiteness, all of that is only because of this kind of anti-blackness, anti-black racism, you know, and that fuels the privilege, you know, around whiteness and white supremacy. I think when white people see black folks and we're embodying our anger is a reminder that there's a system here that you're enjoying. It's a lot for white identify to say, you know what, do I really have what I have because I'm like just smart and I'm like, I work hard or did I just get all of these advantages? I think Donald Trump, he was this example where people couldn't explain away anymore. It was like, there's no reason you should be president. No way at all. Other than he is such an expression of yeah. the level of delusion and ignorance yes, exactly. in our country. On one level, you could say, how is this possible? And in another level, you could say, yeah. how could it have been any other way at yeah. this point? Because yeah. people were so blind. Yeah. You can maintain that blindness when you have the privilege 
not to be around people who don't look like you, yeah. who don't have the same experiences, then people will definitely say, oh, that's not possible. It's quite possible. I know many white folks who don't work with other people of color, who don't have people of color friends, who live in neighborhoods that are not diverse. And it's part of American culture to create places that can be completely exclusionary. And so to do the work of like turning back into undoing whiteness means that you have to come into relationship with this utter heartbreak, guilt, the, all of that. You know, you have to be in relationship with that. And it's honestly a lot. <laughs> you know, having done my own work around racial trauma, I know what that work has been like for me, but we all have to do the work. And I, and I say this particularly for white folks in Buddhism you know, or any spiritual path that's about awakening, compassion, and love. If you're really trying to embody compassion, then you have to turn into the pain. Like you have to hold space for what you're experiencing. If you don't do that, then you're going to continue overreacting to these unconscious parts of who and what we are. And that's what supports white supremacy is unconscious reacting that creates a system of white supremacy, that creates a system of privilege and hierarchy. Folks may say, you know, but I'm not actively practicing racism, but you're still participating in a system. You're still enjoying a system. You may not even know it, but you're still enjoying it. Like you can still walk down a sidewalk or you can still commit a crime and still be handled in a humane way. That's right. Like you won't always be suspected. This is something that people who are not African-American just somehow don't get viscerally. That when you leave your home and you're African-American, there's a way in which you are viewed as dangerous. It has nothing to do with anything other than some kind of underlying assumption that people refuse to acknowledge exists, even though it's so blatant. And I actually think this is the kind of racism that's much more damaging than white supremacists. You know, they're just so blatant. It's more when people say, I'm colorblind. I don't see any difference. I call it the phenomena of good white people. Uh-huh. The problem with that is that that fixation on goodness actually makes it really hard for us to see when we're not. And you know, so I talk about that in Love and Rage. For instance, I do a lot of patriarchy work. I link patriarchy work with whiteness, you know, and so for me, I say, you know what, I'm not interested in being a good boy or a good guy, because people will come to me and say, oh, Ron, you're, you're one of the good guys. I know you mean that as a compliment, but it can be really distracting for me, because I'm more interested in the ways in which I'm not good, those ways in which I reinforce systems of patriarchy and misogyny. You know, I want to see that. That's where my growth is coming from, to see those parts of myself and to disrupt that. The danger is I just kind of rest in this idea of being good. I just look at every moment. I try to practice goodness in every moment. I try to make the best choice in each moment. And that helps me to see everything that's arising and interactions and moving through the world and what have you. And sometimes I don't make it. I don't make the right choice, but I'm committed to learning from the choices and, 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 and trying to make the best choices possible. But you may be aware when you don't make the right choice. And then there's this methodology that Buddhism has for correction around wisdom and compassion. You know, it's all based on awareness. Yeah. We're just trying to know. And knowing doesn't feel good. Like you have to decenter comfort. You want to do this work. It's not always about 
trying to feel good or trying to look good. I think some of us, we have this reward system in our minds. It's like, oh, I'm going to make the, the right decision and everyone should applaud me. And if you're working on that, that kind of thing, then you have to disrupt that. It's not about being rewarded, it's about becoming more human, it's about becoming more connected, it's about becoming less violent for folks around us and for ourselves. That's the reward. It goes back to compassion. I care about people. I care about myself, and so I don't want people to hurt. So I'm going to get really excited about doing work to limit violence, to limit harm, to practice goodness and virtue, but also knowing that everything's still complex. Mm-hmm. This is why wisdom is important. Yes. You know, we have to bring clarity and care together. When those things are working together, wisdom and compassion, our clarity and care are working together, then like that, that's the template that we're using. Yeah, and I think it's important to just double back on mm-hmm. what you said earlier. The clarity to recognize the things people do that are so awful ultimately arise from mm-hmm. suffering from some Mm -hmm. suffering that I too have. There's really no difference in a way between Mm -hmm. some horrible act and anything I've done in my life, knowingly or unknowingly, that has arisen from this same primordial ignorance Mm -hmm. that we all share. We have this shared identity Mm -hmm. of our own collective ignorance. And yet that is a place where I think we can meet the Me Too tag, I wish, had been mm-hmm. used for yeah. the ubiquitousness of human suffering. I mean, that's, I think, ultimately what is probably one of the most important things to do is to realize that we're suffering. We have to stop being afraid of the suffering. If we're afraid of the suffering, then we won't ever begin to understand how suffering is the teacher. It's trying to teach us how not to suffer. But if we keep bypassing it, we'll never get that teaching and we'll never be free. How many times have you been asked in your interviews, if you were to advise white people about what they should do, mm-hmm. <laughs> how many mm-hmm. times have you been asked this? I've been asked this much more for the first book. You know, it was about race and love and liberation. Yes. But this book, I haven't actually. You think people are afraid to ask this now? I mean, actually, I think it's a yeah. terrible question. I yeah. don't think African-Americans should be teaching white people exactly. how to be good people. I'm definitely not going to be asking this question. Mm -hmm. This current uprising, I think there's a lot more education. I see a lot more white people really publicly saying, you know, we have to educate ourselves. I really appreciate that. There's so many resources out there already. Like, you don't have to ask me. (laughs) Really, it's it's true. (laughs) There's so many books. They're all sold out. I'm doing whiteness and white people books. And like all those books are sold out. Those are my friends who are writing these books. There's not a lack of resources now. You just have to engage with it. There are so many white teachers in different fields who are like making this a part of their work. You go and find those people. And I know that these folks are being highlighted now. When white folks come to me, I'm like, no, I actually have this white friend who does undoing whiteness, who does coaching and support for other white folks to, to begin to undo that. Or read my books. You know, I wrote two books, but my current book, Love and Rage, is full of practices. I know, you know? it's wonderful. Even more so, it isn't just a practice book. Yeah, it, this yeah. is a real tender look into the window of a life. There's something about the many ways in which you've broken through. I feel like mm-hmm. that's something people need to read. Does that sound cliche, what I just said? 
I sit around and speak in cliches all the time, and I have to stop and say, no, this, but this is what I really mean. <laughs> you this know? is what I really mean. This isn't a cliche. It's like, this is my lived experience. I'm not just saying this because it's, it sounds good. You know, and I think love and rage is really about that. It's like, okay, here are some cliches. Like, let's, you know, we all have to love. Okay, that's a cliche. But let me unpack that for you. Let's get really in depth about what I actually mean about that. And then you'll see how I'm using that. And you see that like when I say these things, it comes from years of working and rolling around in the teaching and wrestling with it and being pissed off at the teaching and being confused by it. And that's how we earn the dharmas by that, that engagement. It's not a sound bite. It's, it's supposed to radically change us. So when people use a cliche around me, I can feel their work around it. I can feel the difference between someone just using it to look good and sound good, opposed to someone who's using that and it's coming out of like a real experience. Like you feel the weight of how they're using that language. It's weighted. Like you've, you've done work with this because this is not an easy thing for you to say. Right. You know? So you're like, oh, I have to love myself. Self-love, and I, that's like the most overused cliche in the wellness spiritual industrial complex. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that's like every self-help book, it's like the number one, love yourself. But when I say that, it's like, no, I've had to love everything. I've had to love even the darkness. I've had to le learn to love the trauma, the darkness, the despair, the contradictions. I've learned how to be at home with those things. Learning how to even love the shame. The love you're talking about is primarily recognition and care rather than this greasy, attached, yeah. what the self-help stuff usually exactly. is, which is mm -hmm. I am basking in my own pain. Yes. And I am making it something that's not only special, but nobody else has anything like this. This could not be further than what I think you and I are talking about right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't like the word, but I think there's a non-identification in this kind of recognition and care, which is the totality of the recognition of the relative and ultimate aspects of who we are. Mm -hmm. It's deeper than anything we might think we are. Yeah. And it's something we all share. And yeah. that's why earlier when you said, Something like, I am already an enlightened Buddha, I think you mm -hmm. said. Mm -hmm. So people might have heard mm -hmm. that and thought, yeah. who is this person? Why are they saying this? <laughs> yeah. And yet the recognition, the care, that willingness to always be recognizing is that expression of mm -hmm. the enlightened Buddha, which we all have. But it takes backbreaking work. You have to resign yourself to the work. Yeah, it, it does get easier, right? Because it becomes more familiar. You're not running away from everything as much, you know, absolutely. But there are times where it's just like, I would rather not be doing this. I would rather be running away than running into, mm -hmm. you know? But again, the space really helps to mediate yes. the work. Like without the space, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be with the heartbreak and the woundedness and the fear and the terror and the trauma. That I'm with every day. I couldn't, there's no possible way that I could tend to that suffering without spaciousness, you know, and without community and without teachers and without the teachings and without sources of refuge. There's so many resources for us. 
We don't have to do the work alone. Which is something I think Western Buddhism hasn't been very good at. Yeah. Western mm -hmm. Buddhism mostly has been do the work alone. But I think that's partly because of the way our culture is. It's just so individualistic. One of the things that I think has to happen is new communities that are centering the collective just have to emerge. You know, I don't think it's about transforming what we already have. I think it's about creating new structures. And I think this is one of the outcomes of what we're experiencing in 2020. It's like a breakdown of institutions and systems and the emerging of, of different kinds of communities right now. Um, I think that's going to continue even in post-pandemic. I just think we're super inspired and motivated now to create different ways of being and not so invested in trying to revolutionize or trying to reform old institutions. Are you seeing that in specific ways? Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing it. Yeah, I'm seeing it in my work. You know, I have a brand new Sangha and this is the work that we're doing. We're reimagining what it means to be in Sangha. You know, we're reimagining the teachings. We're using all kinds of like political theories and social theories to think about how to be in community together. I think, well, there's, there's been an assumption in the past that, oh, we're just going to practice Buddhism and then the community is going to work itself out. That somehow inherently like sitting and practicing meditation is going to build an actual authentic community. And I think that what we're trying to do in my work and in my community is like, no, let's actually think really critically about what community is. And then let's bring in some of these different ways of thinking and beliefs to build this community as we're also practicing together. I think Buddhist scholars would say that is a returning back to what the historical Buddha did. I think so. Uh, mm -hmm. Three quarters of the suttas, it's the Vinaya, it's the ethical yeah. conduct that the Buddha yeah. laid out in yeah. order to have Sangha, a Sangha yeah. that was so radically different than anything yeah. that existed exactly. yeah. culturally yeah. at that time. He also went beyond lots of cultural distinctions yeah. yes, like exactly. the caste system yeah. and yeah. having women in there. And I mean, mm -hmm. he did all kinds of things that really nobody was doing. What you've described sounds very similar. If people want to become involved with you and the structures that you're creating, how do they do that? Absolutely. You know, you can visit my website, mamarad.com. Uh, my sangha is called Bumi Sparsha. So it means touching the earth. Of course, you can find all of this online. And we have a really robust daily practice schedule. There's something going on every day. You know, my website has all of my events and how to stay connected to me as well. Well, this has just been a tremendous pleasure. I deeply enjoyed the wisdom that you shared today and just so appreciate you and the work that you're doing and the fact that you're here on the planet doing the Buddhist teachings in a way that I think is really needed right now. Probably was needed a long time ago, but <laughs> what can you say? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.